The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and war fighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today is April 20th, 2022, and on behalf of the team here at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center and the staff of the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the third event of our 2022 spring season of the Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. This season's theme is Great Power Competition. We welcome listeners from all over the world to tonight's live stream lecture event, and we are excited to welcome our in-person audience right here uh, in the lecture hall tonight. Please remember that there is a book sale uh, in time for our speaker to sign books right after the lecture tonight, uh, just outside the lecture hall. For those of you listening live online, remember that you can submit a question for our question and answer period at the end of the lecture by either emailing the main U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center email address, or you can search USAHEC on, uh, in Facebook and send us a question through Messenger. So now it's my pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Robert Kaplan. Mr. Kaplan is the best-selling author of 20 books on foreign affairs and travel translated into many languages, including Adriatic, The Good American, The Revenge of Geography, Asia's Cauldron, Monsoon, The Coming Anarchy, and Balkan Ghosts. He holds the Robert Strauss Hupe Chair in Geopolitics at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and has reported on foreign affairs for the Atlantic for over 30 years. He's a member of the Pentagon's Defense Policy Board and the U.S. Navy's Executive Panel. Foreign Policy Magazine twice named him the, one of the world's top 100 global thinkers. Ladies and gentlemen, I present Mr. Robert Kaplan. Thank you. Thank you so much for that introduction, Carl, and it's a real priv privilege and pleasure to be here with all of you tonight. Um, and let me get right into it. Let me get started. Um, historians love chapter breaks. They're neat. They're fine. Uh, and we've just had a chapter break uh, called COVID-19 between the first phase of globalization and what I would call the second phase of globalization. The first phase of globalization began when the Berlin Wall fell. We'll call it that, we'll call it then, 1989. And globalization 1.0 was essentially a good news story. It was about the spread of democracy, the enlargement and creation of middle classes around the world about the unleashing of technology for the individual. Because remember, when the wall fell in 1989, nobody had email, nobody had smartphones or anything like that. And it was also about, um, you know, it was about, uh, it was about a global unipolar power, the United States. And it was about the creation of a global elite. Uh, you know, which has been kind of uh, stereotyped as the Davos elite, people who meet in Davos once a year. But before, you know, and an elite that was basically educated at the top schools around the world, were multilingual, and 
essentially had more in common with each other than they had with their poorer compatriots back at home. The world seemed to be getting smaller in Globalization 1.0. But Globalization 2.0 is not such a good news story. It's a, it's a mixed bag. It's about not just the creation of democracies, but about the re-rise and resurgence of autocracies. It was about the rise of populism around the world, about the decay of free trade as trade wars began to, began to develop. And rather than a unipolar power world, it became a world of geopolitical fractures along the lines of three emerging uh, great powers, United States, China, and Russia. And so it was, um, you know, it, it was a much more difficult world. Uh, to and it was about technology, the underside, the bad side of technology. Technology being used as a form of control on one hand, and also a way to divide people on the other hand is social media. Social media is about passion, and passion is the enemy of analysis. And passion leads to, leads to divisions within societies. And all that came with globalization 2.0. Now, it was not a neat split. Globalization 2.0 began before COVID-19. You know, you saw it creeping in. But as I said, historians like chapter breaks, and now we're full bore into globalization 2.0. And let me talk about the great power fractures of globalization 2.0. That's going to be the basis of my talk tonight. We are now back in the groove of history with the Ukraine, with the Ukraine war. Let me explain what I mean. About 120 years ago, there was a great American historian and diplomat named Henry Adams, who is the grandson of the sixth US president, John Quincy Adams, and the great grandson of the second US president, John Adams. Uh, Henry Adams was a brilliant man, and he wrote a great book, The Education of Henry Adams. He, he talked about himself in the third person. And one of the things he said, and this was like uh, the turn of the 20th century, 1904, 1905, he said, the perennial problem of Europe has and always will be Russia, because Russia is too big to be integrated into Europe and is only partially European in, in, in any case, because the Mongol hordes prevented the Russians from, uh, from basically enjoying all the fruits of the, Europe, the Western European enlightenment, uh, Russia was always more backward, in a sense, more unstable, more insecure, and yet so vast and big. And he said the ultimate goal of Europe, looking ahead decades and centuries, was how to integrate Russia into what Adams called the Atlantic Combine, uh, meaning Western Europe. You know, it's a nice quaint phrase from 120 years ago. And, well, nothing has changed, uh, really. Um, there have been some histor historical interruptions, but look, World War I, the fiercest and most pivotal battles were between Russia 
and Germany in uh, the Battle of Tannenberg, which uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn de devoted the first volume of his long series of books, The Red Wheel, all about. And Solzhenitsyn's depiction of the Battle of Tannenberg in his book, August 1914, the first of these volumes, should be read at every military war college. It's one of the most brilliant depictions of a battle from the tactical point of view, from the human point of view, from the point of view of the different cultures of Germany and Russia. Um, in a sense, and you know, the, you know, he goes into in, into so much there. It really should be read. Um, that was World War One. World War Two, the Eastern Front with Russia was the bloodiest, the worst, the hardest at all. The Cold War was about the Soviet Union, which was which in which of which Russia formed about eighty percent of. Um, you know, it was about keeping the Soviets out of Europe, essentially. Again, too big to be absorbed. Then we had uh, what I call two historical interruptions. One interruption was the general enfeeblement of Russia uh, after the end of the Cold War in the 1990s for about 10 years. Uh, Russia was in a state of chaos, in a state of weakness, um, Boris Yeltsin's rule was very, uh, very weak, very enfeebled. And if you think about it, the only reason why the United States military was able to, uh, you know, was, was able to go into Bosnia, insert itself into Bosnia in 1995, and then insert itself into Kosovo in 1999 was because Russia was so weak then because the Balkans were traditionally a zone of Russian influence. And if Russia was as strong as it was during the Soviet days, or as strong as it was under the Putin days of the 2000s and 2010s, Bosnia and Kosovo would have had different outcomes. It all would have been different. I don't know how it would have been different, but it, but it would have been different, essentially. So the, the, you know, the Balkan interventions were a byproduct of an enfeebled Russia. Um, then you had another historical interruption, what I call the 9-11 head fake, um, meaning that when 9-11 happened, the Chinese were not seen to be building a great navy, or it wasn't on enough people's radar screens. And Vladimir Putin had just come into office, and at the very beginning would seem to be a liberal who would open the, uh, the Russian system and was not anti-Western or anti-American. This was before the color revolutions that helped turn Putin against the West. Um, it was before a lot of things. So Russia was not on anyone's radar screen at 9-11, and neither was China at that point. And even in 2003, when we invaded Iraq, the Chinese buildup of the Chinese Navy and military was still far in the distance, and Putin was still not an enemy at that point. So you could forgive people for thinking that the global war on terrorism was the big threat. You know, because the other two things, which now from hindsight, all the geniuses thinking from hindsight, say that, but that was always obvious. It wasn't obvious. And so you had the enfeeblement of Russia, and you had the 9-11 head fake. 
essentially. Finally now, we're back to history. Um, we're it's, it's all about Russia again. And we're back to empire. Why do I say that? Empire is a dirty word on college campuses these days. Uh, empire is synonymous with British and French depredations in sub-Saharan Africa and other places. But empire is much larger than that. The whole history of China going back thousands of years is a history of empire. And the Chinese are very proud of their empire. They inculcate the glory of empire in the schools in China. Um, the same with India. India had the, the Nanda dynasty, the Mauran dynasty, um, so many of uh, the Mughal dynasty. These were all empires. Many of these dynasties controlled half of what is today Afghanistan. Uh, Persia has been one empire after another. The Achaemenids in antiquity, the Sassanids in late antiquity, and the Qajars. And so Iran, Iran is historically an empire. And, I, and you know what? The Ayatollahs are imperialists the same way that the Shah was, the, the same way the previous uh, Persian, uh, Persian rulers were. Um, and on and on it goes. Um, in Africa, you had indigenous empires, the Mali, the Songhai, and others. Empire has been the way humanity has, has organized the geography of the earth, going back thousands of years. And we are now back to empire. Why are we back to it? Because to understand Russia in Ukraine, you have to think about the Romanov Empire, which encompassed Ukraine. To understand why China wants to get back Taiwan, you have to think about the Qing dynastic empire, for which, which had incorporated Taiwan, as well as Outer Mongolia and other places. Uh, and if you want to, you know, if you want to think about, you know, what motivates Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan's Turkey, you have to go back to the Ottomans, to the Seljuks, to various empires. Turkey has a very imperial focus in the Middle East, um, and so. Um, Empire may be a dirty word, but unless you're willing to face it and think about it in a, from a neutral point of view, you won't fully understand how the, foreign, the secret sauce of the foreign policies of many leading powers and, second, and secondary powers in the world today. So we're back to history, we're back to empire, and what does it mean geopolitically? Well, there were two great geopolitical theorists uh, at the turn of the 20th century and in the mid-20th century. The first was Sir Halford Mackinder, who is British. And Mackinder had an interesting idea. He said, wars have tended to be small because great powers, great European powers, were busy occupying the earth, the parts of the earth, through building colonial empires. So the British and French were occupied in Africa, etc., so that they weren't really you know, facing each other. But by the end of the 20th century, Mackinder predicted the whole earth had been mapped out already. And the very finite size of the earth became a force of instability. 
and therefore the great European powers had no, no place else to fight except each other on the European continent. And thus he predicted World War I. And right after World War I, he said that the issue between Germany and, and Russia, between the Rimland and the Heartland, had still been undecided. It still had energy left in, in it, and he, thus he predicted World War II. Um, Mackinder believed uh, that the Heartland was the key to geopolitical power. What is the Heartland? It's, it's a nebulous concept anywhere from Eastern Europe to Ukraine to Central Asia, the interior of the Eurasian continent. Why did he believe this? Because he said Eurasia, or Afro-Eurasia, as he called it, was, was, the heart, you know, was the center of the whole Earth, where humanity lived. And because of railways able to penetrate to the interior of Eurasia, he who controls the interior of Eurasia will ultimately have the, be the geopolitical benefit for the world, essentially. And he also identified temperate zone North America as the most important of the satellites of Eurasia. So, you know, Mackinder believed in this heartland theory. Then there was a Dutch-American geopolitician who taught at Yale named Nicholas Spikeman. And Spikeman died young in his 40s. He was very ill. Um, but right before he died, he published a book about the Rimland thesis. And the Rimland thesis was, no, Mackinder's wrong. It's not the heartland. It's the Rimland. What's the Rimland? It's the, it's the European subcontinent of Eurasia. It's India, it's the Persian Gulf, it's the Red Sea, it's all the lands basically in a semicircle around the heartland, around the Soviet Union. And it's also about East Asia. It's about the edges of Eurasia going all around. And he said, Japan is our enemy today. We're fighting a war with it. But ultimately, Japan will have to be allied with the United States because the, because the, the power that controlled both the heartland and the rimland in the eastern half of Eurasia was China. So Japan will be an ally with us against China. To say this in 1942 uh, was clairvoyant in the extreme. Um, so, But if you put... If you put Spikeman's Rimland thesis together with Mackinder's Heartland thesis, you've got today. What is today? You have the Heartland powers of Russia and China facing off against the Rimland powers of our East Asian alliance system and NATO you know, on the rim of Europe, backed up by the temperate zone North American satellite. So geopolitics has come to a climax, in a way, with, this, uh, with the war in Ukraine. Um, and what we may be facing, nobody knows, is, uh, you know, as I was saying before the speech, there's a, a cliche going around now. You know, something only becomes a cliche after it's been, been proven to be very insightful. Then it becomes a cliche, or particularly bright. 
Um, it's like so many lines in Casablanca are cliches, but somebody had to write them originally. Um, the cliche going around was spoken by Lenin, who said, you know, decades could go on and nothing happens. Then weeks go on and decades happen. Everything happens within a few weeks. Um, we're in this phase now where the next six weeks in Ukraine could determine the next 15 years in Russia and beyond. Um, um, because Mackinder and Spikeman have laid out the stage set of geopolitics, but on that stage are Shakespearean actors. Uh, you know, Zelensky in Ukraine, Putin in Russia, and the individual decisions by uh, generals and other commanders, which will, which over the next six or seven weeks could really determine um, history in a sense. And one, you know, so many outcomes are possible. One is a is a is a is, um, is a chronic a chronic Ukrainian insurgency against a nuclear power essentially. So you could have the combination of World War II style bombing with an insurgency. Uh, we've had insurgencies in the Philippines, in Malaya, in, uh, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. There could be one in Ukraine. Uh, um, we'll see where that goes. Let me switch the focus now to China. I want to talk about China. The, the, the so-called Cold War with China will go on for many years to come. Why can I say that? Well, let's take it one issue at a time. Let's look at the military issue. From the point of view of the Chinese, the South China Sea is their Caribbean. They're doing nothing in the South China Sea that the US did not do in the Caribbean in the late 19th and turn of the 20th century. It's their marginal sea, their adjacent sea. It's the blue water extension of the Chinese landmass. Land it's theirs. And the United States Navy and Air Force come from half a world away to contest that space, meaning the Americans are evil, head, uh, you know, hegemonic imperialists, essentially. Well, the US military looks at things differently. The US military says Commodore Perry opened up Japan in 1853. The US fought a long war in the Philippines at the turn of the 20th century. There was World War II in the Pacific, marine landings. The only US aircraft carrier strike group that's based outside of the legal United States is based in Japan. And on and on it goes, we are an Asian power. Asia are our home waters. So the Chinese and American military perceptions of the Asian rimland are 180 degrees opposite. Then there's cyber. Cyber may be a great thing if you're in financial markets and you know Hong Kong affects the London Stock Exchange and all of that. But from a geopolitical point of view, cyber is a downer. It's a negative. It's a real negative. Uh, and it's a destabilizing negative. Because the United States and China have been more or less in a hot cyber war for years now. Uh, the Chinese have successfully hacked into the Pentagon's personnel system, into the US Navy ship maintenance logs. 
into uh, the, all the contractors around the 50 states who build component parts for fighter jets, warships, et cetera. Um, so cyber is a negative between uh, China and the United States. Then there's ideology. For about a third of a century, from the death of Mao Zedong to the rise of Xi Jinping, about 35 years or so, um, China was a benevolent, risk-averse, collegial, um, somewhat enlightened autocracy. And uh, the American business community loved it. They made a whole generation of American business people and finance people made fortunes in China. Um, and China had friends in Congress. And China had friends in the media. Because everyone knew that if you had cold turkey democracy in China, it would fall apart into chaos. And we were thankful that it was a more enlightened regime than under Mao. You had a collegial rule. Everyone retired. The, you know, the top leaders had to retire at 65. They could only serve two terms. They were all meritocratic engineers who had worked in the provinces. It was a real elite, a real meritocratic elite. Well, that China doesn't exist anymore. Uh, that China is gone with Xi Jinping's rise and return to, the to a level of autocracy that is not as bad as Mao Zedong, but getting close to it. Um, and you know, one man autocratic uh, rule, um, you, know, in, you know, the use of, of technology to repress, you know, repress the average Chinese, giving them social credit scores, et cetera, repressing the Turkic Uyghur Muslim population. Uh, it's a different China. And as a result, China has no friends left in Washington. It has no friends left in the business community, no friends left in Congress, no friends left in the elite media. So there's ideology, there's cyber, there's the military. Of course, we know about trade. We have been, you know, we're in a trade war with China. It was initiated by Donald Trump. But interestingly enough, uh, um, Biden's trade representative has not really changed things that much. Uh, the Trump trade policy, more or less, has survived into the Biden administration because it's supported by a large chump, chunk of the American people. So uh, a lot may be different between the Trump and Biden administrations, but when it comes to trade wars with China, not that much. So that's where we are. Now keep something in mind. We had wars over the past 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq. Libya collapsed. Syria collapsed. Yemen collapsed. None of these conflicts affected the stock market. You know, or if they did, only marginally at the end edges. You know, when Iraqi oil was closed off, it affected some energy markets. But basically, nobody saw changes in their 401ks because of any of these Middle East wars. A war in the South China Sea or in the East China Sea between the world's first, second, and third largest economies would be very different even if it was a short, sharp war of three or four days or a week. And who knows if it spread? Because a war in the South China Sea could easily lead to missiles being fired into the interior of China 
uh, you know, to, to large-scale cyber attacks. We have not really seen big cyber attacks yet. We think we have, we haven't. We don't know the scale of cyber attacks, you know, what, uh, what they're capable of. You know, the Russian malware that's been inserted into U.S. banks, what the Chinese have been doing, um, you, know, you know, there's a lot. We're now dealing with great power rivalry, which will have a much deeper effect on the average American than even the wars in the Middle East, or could. Um, so what's the goal in China, at least? The goal is to get U.S.-Chinese relations to a post-Cuban Missile Crisis scenario. Why do I say that? Cuban Missile Crisis, October, November, 1962. Both superpowers stared into the abyss, and they, didn't, they did not like what they saw. It terrified the heck out of them. And it was only in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis that you got a hotline established, an, uh, you know, strategic arms limitation talks, um, a, a nuclear test ban treaty, uh, eventually detente, and a whole bunch of other things. Those were all attempts and accomplishments of the two superpowers to draw parameters around the Cold War, to make the Cold War somewhat less dangerous. Um, it didn't solve any of the problems or disputes between the two sides, but the two sides agreed, we've got to do something here. We've got to set parameters, essentially. That's the goal with China. Um, to, you know, not to solve our, you know, our trade dispute with China, not to do, you know, not to, you know, we'll continue to disagree on the South China Sea, the East China Sea, et cetera, but to get U.S.-Chinese relations to a post-Cuban missile crisis kind of, uh, kind of scenario. Uh, and this is incredibly important because when you look at East Asia now, China, uh, Taiwan is like West Berlin during the Cold War. You know, it's the centerpiece. It's the heart of things. And the Chinese goal is what I call Asian Finlandization. Uh, remember, Finland during the Cold War was free, it was democratic, it was prosperous, it was capitalistic, but it could not join NATO. Its foreign policy was approved in Moscow. And it was a cheap form of colonialism for the Soviets. They didn't have to do much. Um, and yet they got Finland to be a neutral power, essentially. And what the Chinese would like to do from Japan south to Australia is to essentially make these powers, you know, you know answerable to Beijing on big foreign policy issues and strategic issues. And that's what the U.S. is essentially fighting. Uh, let me sort of close up by talking about a few things. One is we live in a very claustrophobic world. Uh, we're 7.7 billion human beings, and we're going to be 11 billion human beings by the end of this century. And that's already factoring in decline in birth rates uh, uh, and everything. You know, it one, because of technology, a crisis in one part of the world 
can ricochet and affect and migrate to another part of the world at a much faster rate than it was ever possible before in history. Um, so something that could start in Ukraine can end somewhere else um, uh, um, eventually. The third thing is, let me say a few words about geography here. Um, military historians like to study the Sicilian expedition in the seventh book of Thucydides, which is the Athenians got involved defending an ally of an uh, 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 defending an ally of another ally of a friend in Sicily who is you know being attacked by an adversary of an adversary of Athens. And it started off very small, and in about 15 years, the whole Athenian military establishment was involved in Sicily, and they lost. And this Sicily infected uh, Athenian politics for decades after. And you know, the Sicilian expedition is compared to Vietnam, to Iraq, starting small, and then ultimately all of American prestige is affected. But Iraq, Iraq is half a world away from the U.S. Vietnam is half a world away from the U.S. Sicily is right next to Greece. What am I talking about? Because in the ancient world, Sicily was half a world away because of, they didn't have the technology. All right, let me pivot that to something else. The Weimar Republic in Germany. For 20 years, it was completely unstable there was always a crisis. One part of the system was always in, you know, was always rubbing against another part. Nobody was fully in control. There were always demonstrations, stasis, you know, real conflict going on. And then it ended when Hitler came to power. Um, the Weimar Republic lasted about 14 years. All right. Well, that's just, you know, Germany. Ha ha. But the world, like in the Sicilian expedition, has gotten so united. And how technology has defeated distance, essentially, that we now have a, a world system. It may not be a world government, but it is a kind of security system or, or unsecurity system, where all the parts of instability around the world affect the other so that we're essentially, we've gotten to the point where, we're, where the whole planet is like the Weimar Republic. Now, the Weimar Republic ended with Hitler. The world is not going to end with something like that. Hitler came to power because of a number of contingencies that were almost impossible to imagine, accidents, all, you know, incidents of fate, all kinds of things where they thought they'd put him in power so they could control him and then he couldn't be controlled. And this happened and that happened. And, but yet, for 14 years, Germany was in a state of crisis. I call it the permanent crisis. Uh, in fact, it was called the permanent crisis by a German historian, Golo Mann, the son of Thomas Mann, the Nobel Prize winning author. And um, the world is in a state of crisis, you know, where one part can easily affect another part. And just to sum up, I would say that, you know, in, in the stock market, you have bear markets, you have bull markets. All right. In geopolitics, we're in a bear market, you know. And we will likely be in a bear market for years to come. Thank you very much.
All right. Late, thank you very much, Mr. Kaplan. Yeah. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we now have plenty of time for some questions and answers. Just a reminder to our remote audience, you can submit your questions for our question and answer period by either going to our main uh, website, it's there on the backdrop behind Mr. Kaplan, uh, and sending us an email, or you can go to Facebook, search USAHEC, and send us a message on uh, Facebook Messenger. But to get us started here, uh, we have our very first uh, question there in the back. Yeah. Hey, Mr. Kaplan, thanks a lot. It's uh, phenomenal, and I'm a, a big fan. Um, I'm going to ask a question, four different parts of it, kind of, sort of, easy. Yeah. So the sweep of history, Yeah. right? So did the sweep of Russian history and culture produce Vladimir Putin? Or did Vladimir Putin produce the last 15 years of Russian history? Did the sweep of Chinese culture yeah. and, and history produce Xi Jinping? Or did Xi Jinping produce modern China as we see it right now? And all of those can be true. But uh, anyway, I really like your opinion on that. Yeah. Thank you. No, it, it, b both are true. You know, deterministic forces of history, geography, culture, economics are the stage set and provide the context by which individuals act things out. But the individuals are all Shakespearean in a sense that, you know, an individual leader is like a hinge. They can take a place one direction or another direction. Had we, you know, you, you know, had we not declared that Ukraine can join NATO and Bucharest in 2008, had the color revolutions been different, Putin might have been different. Because he's not, Putin is not one-dimensional like Hitler. Hitler told the world exactly what he was going to do in Mein Kampf, published in 1922. All that happened in the next 11 years was he came to power, you know? Putin evolved, you know, to a much greater degree than Hitler did. Putin started out for a time as a liberal. This is all in a great book by New York Times Moscow bureau chief Stephen Lee Myers, a biography of Putin. And it's interesting how Putin worked his way up the system. He, he wasn't sure himself what direction he would take. But finally, it evolved that he couldn't be a liberal because that was too risky. He could get himself killed and deposed that way. Again, given the Russian system as it was, he was from the KGB, and the KGB was in the midst of dividing up the various, you know, uh, the various um, uh, aspects of the Russian state for private gain. So, and Putin was, you know, was highly organized, and he evolved, you know, some. Putin has more, had, for the last decade, he has had more power than any Soviet, any Russian or Soviet leader since Stalin. Because Brezhnev, Khrushchev, um, they all operated as the front men for politburos, essentially. We, they seemed to be in control, but in fact, they needed human unanimity. It was kind of like the Federal Reserve. Powell 
you know, is the face. He makes the decision, but all the Fed governors have to essentially, or a majority of them, have to agree with what he's going to do on interest rates. So Putin has had more power than anyone since Stalin. And that's why I said it gets very Shakespearean now. And we'll see how Putin handles this pressure on him. Be, does he sleep at night uh, now? Uh, no, really, this is a serious question. Can he handle this? You know, some people can rise to the occasion with this kind of pressure. It's just unknown, but we do know that to do what he's done over the last 20 years, you know, requires levels of emotional strength that even the most cynical, manipulative person in Washington does not have. You know, um, Xi Jinping, you know, came, you know, worked in the provinces. He was an engineer. He worked his way up through. He worked his way up for the system. You know, this is Chinese uh, autocratic meritocracy working essentially. Now, in the Chinese system. She does not, she has a system around him. Putin does not. Uh, you know, if she were to get sick and incapacitated, the Chinese would just elect a new leader of, uh, uh, you know, of the, a new general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. There's a whole, there's a whole procedure for that. In Russia, there is no procedure. So Russia is much more unpredictable. Yes. China has tolerated Taiwan for decades. Have the past few weeks with Putin invading Ukraine emboldened China regarding Taiwan? Um, that's the $64,000 question. We do know one thing. The Chinese are great students. They, are studying every, they studied every aspect of both Gulf Wars. They studied the Balkan Wars. They are great. You can bet your life that they're studying every aspect of this war. Uh, the Russian performance, the Ukrainian performance, the way the West was able to get united, the way the West was, was able to get a sanctions regime imposed. The Chinese are analyzing all of this and will eventually report back to Xi, essentially, as to what pitfalls to avoid. In, in terms of our policy to try to regain Taiwan, how to do it, if it alters how they do it. It's, it's not an either or, essentially. The Chinese are in the midst of studying this. <clears throat> yes. Back when Trump was president, he went over to NATO and said, you know, everybody should pay their 2% or whatever. But Germany wasn't doing that. What did Merkel tell? the Germans as to why they didn't want to pay for NATO. What was going on there? Um, look, since 1989, until recently, the Europeans did not see a palpable threat from, from Russia. It was an abstract threat. It was this way of thinking. Russia is not going to invade Germany. And if Russia invades the Baltic states, that's the American responsibility. If Russia invades Poland, that's America. We really don't have a palpable threat from Russia. 
So we can get natural gas from Russia, so we don't need nuclear plants, you know? We don't need to build liquefied natural gas terminals to get gas from the Middle East and North America, because we can get them from Russia, because Russia is not a palpable threat. Well, in the last two months now, Russia has suddenly become a palpable threat because Russia has shown that it's fully capable of launching a World War II-style invasion on a sovereign country. So the Germans are coming to, our German policy has evolved uh, rather dramatically in the, past few, in the past few weeks. We'll see how far it goes. You know, this crisis is only in its early chapters, maybe. You will have many peregrinations to it. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, as far as Taiwan, I, I, I've talked to people that lived through World War II and the communist takeover. I really don't. I, I, I would think the Chinese aren't going to blow up Taiwan, uh, Taiwan, just like you know Ukraine. I mean, if they want to take it over, they're going to be. It seems to me they operate more. We have this tremendous force. You might as well give up. Is that? Is that what they're well, thinking? <clears throat> they, they may try to, de, you know, to um, demoralize the Taiwanese population through cyber attacks and disinformation campaigns. Uh, they have missiles focused on Taiwan. They're also incorporating the Taiwanese economy into the Chinese economy. It's sort of how to make an end run around Taiwanese sovereignty to avoid the need for the kind of, you know, brutality, you know, the kind of bludgeoning brutality of what Russia has done in yeah, Ukraine. I, I've talked to people, they say, trying to go in there wrecking uh, everything is probably not right, that's gonna happen. But I, I've noticed another thing too, like Koreans live in Korea and Japanese live in Japan, you know, all these people, they've all been invaded and everything, but it's, when you look at a Korea again, in Japan, Philippines, China, same yeah. people are still living there. Yeah. All right, sir, we have a, a question that came in midway through your lecture. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to uh, change it just a little bit uh, after some things you said later. But um, a person can have an instant global audience through social media and other in, uh, internet-based communications. Do you see this individual ability to communicate globally, instantly affecting glo uh, global power competition, uh, and especially lately with what's going on in uh, well, Eastern Europe? Well, <clears throat> social media makes uh, geopolitics less predictable. I'll just give you an example. Um, everyone in Lebanon uses WhatsApp. You know what WhatsApp is, okay. Uh, the Lebanese government a few years ago tried to uh, put a tax of like the equivalent of one penny on each WhatsApp communication. It led to riots throughout the country. Um, so um, that's the kind of crazy thing that can happen. Um, uh, I was in Saudi Arabia recently. And the Saudis are openly, forcefully trying to integrate Israel into the Middle East. But they're worried about one thing. The Israel-Palestinian crisis goes on. And as they said to me, in this crazy age of social media, one tweet can happen and there could be riots in the West Bank. And, you know, and, you know, and, and that exposes us. So social media is a destabilizing element. 
and especially, as I said earlier, social media, because of its brevity, is the way to communicate passion. And passion is destabilizing, because it sets people at odds with each other. Print media is about going into detail and going into nuances, essentially. America was a great democracy in the greater print and typewriter era, from essentially the founding fathers to you know, the late 20th century. Can America be a great functioning democracy in the digital video age? Um, I don't know. That, that question is still out there. Yeah. Quick follow-up on yeah. that. Again, another question, we'll... very similar question from the internet uh, that follows up. Uh, basically from the government side, however, the, uh, this instant communication ability uh, as far as propaganda, censorship, and, and communication noise. Uh, very similar question, though. How do you see uh, the government side of social media and, and other communications on the Internet uh, affecting the ability of, of governments to to affect that competition. Yeah, well, governments use social media very effectively. They're big, you know, they're powerful. They can do this. If they have, you know, mind, governments have used social media for COVID purposes, um, yeah, uh, you know, to convince people to get, you know, to get vaccinated, et cetera. So the Chinese use social, their own social media. The Chinese government manipulates social media. It's both ways, um, essentially. But it's a complexifying, destabilizing element in general. Yeah. At the beginning of your comments, uh, you addressed globalization. One of the premises of globalization was that if we got all of these countries um, intermixed in terms of economy and dependent on each other for producing uh, their products and so on, that we seem to have found ourselves now to where some of the countries have found out how globalization can actually be turned into a weapon of war. And a good example is the relationship we have now between Germany and Russia. Okay. What recommendations would you make, plus or minus, to globalization as we have it today in order to turn down the temperature here uh, where globalization has gotten us to? Uh, that's a very tough question to answer. What I would say is um, we, our, our message has to, has to take into account the complexity of the world, you know, essentially. There are many democracies in the developing world that are supporting Russia or China. You know, in the, you know, in, in the present conflict, because their interests are different than ours. We have to be careful not just to Im impose our values, to think that the world is an extension of the American historical experience, because it isn't, because the other countries have their own historical experiences. So it takes a little bit of humility there. You know, I can name a few autocracies which want to help us in Russia and a whole bunch of democracies that don't, you know, um, essentially. Um, you know, everyone acts on their interests. You know, that hasn't changed. And we had um, a series of secretaries of state throughout the Cold War who recognized this. And that got us through the Cold War. 
Yeah. Sir, uh, thank you for the presentation. So when you mentioned great powers, you talked about Russia, China, the United States. Do you see India in the future becoming one of these great powers with its population, economy expanding, it is a nuclear power? Uh, India will always be uh, the most important pivot power of the second tier powers. Because simply where India is on the map, simply with its large population and growing military, India is in and of itself a balancer against China. So we don't need India to do anything except to keep doing what it's doing. Getting stronger, getting more populous, getting more militarily capable because of where it sits on the map and its history, it's a balancer against China. Um, and, other, and India will always be that, you see? So uh, India is a pivot state. You know, if, uh, if, if, um, if U.S.-Chinese relations got really, really bad and warlike, India would move closer to China because India would feel it cannot afford to anger China during a warlike situation. But if U.S.-Chinese relations were to improve dramatically, India would move closer to us because it would have the, uh, the ability to do so. You know, it wouldn't have to worry about China because China and America are getting along. So India is the classic pivot state. Um, it's less well organized than China. It's harder to get things done in India than in China. After all, India is a democracy and a very tumultuous, somewhat chaotic one at that. All right, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, we have time for one more question. Hey, sir, our national defense strategy just came out and says uh, China is the pacing challenge for the Department of Defense. You mentioned our goal is to get U.S.-China relations to a post-Cuban missile crisis type scenario. How do we make that China's goal if everyone acts in their interests? Well, that's a great question. I think the Chinese, the Chinese are rational. Uh, they do not want an accidental war in the South China Sea or the East China Sea, because they're doing very well in a time of peace. They're building a runway here, refilling an island there, establishing a government there. Little by little, they're, you know, they're encroaching and taking over the South China Sea. Why would they want a war with the US Navy? Um, and, and so it's, it's fully in their interests you know, to have a kind of understanding, red lines. Um, you know, you, um, you know, you know, so that each understands each other's signals, knows what the other is going to do, and the same in the East China Sea. So I think it's fully in China's interest that there not be a hot war. Also, China is not the former Soviet Union. It has a real economy. It has a stock market. The last thing it wants is a war that could decimate world stock markets. Well. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Oh, okay, there we go. It's working. All right, uh, sir, thank you so much for uh, coming out tonight. Before we take you back to the book signing, though, we have Ms. Heather Goyette here. She's one of our team leaders from our academic, uh, academic scholarship team uh, to make a quick presentation. All Heather. Right. Thank you. Hello, sir. Uh, my name is Heather Goyette. I'm the instruction chief for the Academic Scholarship Directorate of AHEC. 
I just wanted to thank you tonight for your presentation. It was very thought-provoking, and I really liked your part when you were talking about technology and social media and the passion being uh, the enemy of analysis. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the things I wanted to do is present to you, oh, thank you. Uh, the AHEC coin. Yeah. It is oh, the Ridgeway coin. Oh, this is beautiful, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, thank you very much. Uh, sir, is there anything further you wanted to talk about? No, Imagine? no, just okay. thank you very much for hosting. Thank you. Me. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events. <laughs>